Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, coming in solo today and I've got a brand spanking new episode for all of you guys tonight. First and foremost, we're going to talk about the Phillies slain boy in box 66 years later. We know his name finally. And this has been an interesting case because I've seen it in the news a little bit, but it's an older one. Michael Rubencom wrote this article. His name was Joseph Augustus Zarelli. Nearly 66 years after the battered body of a young boy was found stuffed inside of a cardboard box, Philadelphia police say they have finally unlocked a central mystery in the city's most notorious cold case, the victim's identity. Revealing the name to the public Thursday, the authorities hope it will bring them a step closer to the boy's killer and give the victim, known by generations of Philadelphians as the boy in the box, some measure of dignity. When people think about the boy in the box, a profound sadness is felt not just because a child was murdered, but because his entire identity and his rightful claim to his existence was taken away. Philadelphia police commissioners said at a news conference. The Philadelphia Police Commissioner Danielle Outlaw said at a news conference, she said the city's oldest unsolved homicide has haunted this community, the Philadelphia Police Department, our nation, and the world for more than six decades. The homicide investigation remains open, and authorities said they hoped publicizing Joseph's name would spur a fresh round of leads, but they cautioned that the passage of time complicates the task. It's going to be an uphill battle for us to definitely determine who caused this child's death, said Captain Jason Smith, commanding officer of the homicide unit. We may not make an arrest, we may never make an identification, but we're going to do our darndest to try. Police said both of Joseph's parents are dead, but he has living siblings. They said the family lived in West Philadelphia. The child's naked, badly bruised body was found February 25, 1957 in a wooded area of Philadelphia's Fox Chase neighborhood. The boy was four years old, had been wrapped in a blanket, and placed inside a large J.C. Penny bassinet box. Police say he was malnourished and he'd been beaten to death. The boy's photo was put on a poster and plastered all over the city as police worked to identify him and catch his killer. Detectives pursued and discarded hundreds of leads that he was a Hungarian refugee, a boy who'd been kidnapped outside of Long Island in 1955, a variety of missing children. They investigated a pair of traveling carnival workers and a family who'd operated a nearby foster home, but ruled them out as suspects. An Ohio woman claimed her mother bought the boy from his birth parents in 1954 and kept him in the basement of their suburban Philadelphia home, eventually killing him in a fit of rage. Authorities found her credible but could not corroborate her story, another dead end. All the while, the boy's missing identity gnawed at police officials, generations of whom took up this case. They got permission to exhume his body for DNA testing in 1998 and again in 2019. And it was the latest round of testing combined with genetic genealogy that finally gave police their big break. And Dr. Colleen Fitzpatrick, president of Identifiers International, a company that uses forensic genetic genealogy to help law enforcement investigate cold cases, said the victim's DNA was so degraded that it took two and a half years of work to be able to finally extract enough data to perform the genealogy. 
The test results were uploaded to DNA databases, allowing genealogists to make a match on one of the child's maternal side relatives. Authorities obtained a court order for vital records of any children born to the woman they suspected was Joseph's mother between 1944 and 1956, and later they found Joseph's birth certificate, which also listed the name of his father. William Fleischer, the co-founder of a group of professional sleuths called the Vidoc Society, took up the boy in the box case a quarter of a century ago, and they said hundreds of investigators had poured their hearts and souls into learning the boy's identity and the circumstances of his death since 1957. Many of these men and women aren't even with us anymore, but I feel their souls are standing here at this moment with us, Fleischer said at a news conference. Now our lad is no longer the boy in the box. He has a name. Originally buried in a pauper's grave, the child's remains now lie just inside the front gate of Ivy Hill Cemetery under a weeping cherry tree, and a headstone designates him as America's Unknown Child. Services have been held here each year on the anniversary of the boy's discovery inside the box. People often leave flowers and this time of the year, Christmas decorations and toys. The boy has always been special to all of us because we don't know who he is, Dave Drysdale, the cemetery secretary treasurer, said in a phone interview ahead of the news conference. Now they do. Now he has a name, his real name, and it will be etched into the stone. Very sad story indeed. We are going to shift into the main case for the night. And I know that there has been a Netflix special on this one, and it's called The Empress. And it's a really interesting show. So I highly recommend you go check that out if you would like to. But this is basically the story of Empress Elizabeth of Austria. Elizabeth Amelie Eugenie was born December 24th. 1837, in Munich, Bavaria. She was the third child and the second daughter of Duke Maximilian Joseph in Bavaria and Princess Ludovica of Bavaria, the half-sister of King Ludwig I of Bavaria. Maximilian, Elizabeth's father, was said to be really strange. He had a childish love of circuses and often traveled the Bavarian countryside to escape his duties as duke. The family's homes were the Herzog Max Palace in Munich during the winter and the Posenhofen Castle in the summer months, which was not unusual. Typically, royalty of that time had a summer house and a winter house. And Dissy, as she was called, and her siblings grew up a very unstructured and unrestrained sort of way, and she often skipped educational lessons to go riding in the countryside. By 1853, Princess Sophia of Bavaria, who was the domineering mother of Emperor Franz Joseph, who was about 23 at the time, arranged a marriage between her son and her sister Ludvika's oldest daughter, Helena. She was known as Nini. She preferred to have a niece as a daughter-in-law instead of a stranger, so that's why this match was so advantageous. And although the couple never met, it was sort of taken for granted that Franz Joseph would accept this marriage. So then the Duchess and Helena were invited to journey to Upper Austria to receive this proposal of marriage. At the time, 15-year-old Cece was accompanied by her mother and sister, 
and they traveled from Munich. They arrived late because the Duchess, prone to migraine headaches, had interrupted the journey and the coach with their dresses and other fancy clothing never arrived. The Bavarian court at that time had gone into mourning over the death of the Queen Dowager's brother, George, so everyone was dressed in black, and there was no suitable clothing for them to change into before meeting Franz Joseph. So black was definitely not flattering for 18-year-old Helena's dark coloring, but it made her younger sister Cece's blonde looks more striking. Helena was pious and quiet, and she and Franz Joseph never really got along that well, but he was instantly captivated by her younger sister, Elizabeth. He did not propose to the older daughter, but instead he defied his mother and decided that if he wasn't going to have Elizabeth, the younger daughter, then he would not marry at all. And five days later, the betrothal between Elizabeth and Franz Joseph was officially announced. And they married eight months later in Vienna on April 24th, 1854. The marriage wasn't consummated, though, until three days later. And Elizabeth got a dowager equal to about $2,400,000 today. After a pretty informal and unstructured childhood, Elizabeth was pretty shy and introverted and didn't really fit in super well among the formality of the Habsburg court life. She had difficulty adapting, and the rigid protocols and strict etiquette were not really her scene. And after a few weeks, she started having health problems, experiencing fits of coughing. She was anxious and scared whenever she had to descend staircases for some reason. She was surprised to learn she was pregnant and gave birth to her first child, which was a daughter, Archduchess Sophie of Austria, in 1855, just 10 months after her wedding. The elder Archduchess Sophie, who often referred to Elizabeth as a silly young mother, not only named this little girl after herself without consulting Elizabeth, but she took complete charge of this baby, and this was her mother-in-law refusing to even allow Elizabeth to breastfeed the child or care for her. Her second daughter, Archduchess Gisela of Austria, was born in 1856, and that baby was taken away from Elizabeth as well. At that time, it was really critical that women would produce an heir that was male, and because Elizabeth hadn't produced any male heirs, it was increasingly awkward for her and it was stressful. One day, she actually found a pamphlet on her desk with the natural destiny of a queen is to give an heir to the throne, underlined, and it sort of told her that if she bore no sons, she was merely a foreigner of the state and a dangerous foreigner too. Her mother-in-law is generally thought to be the source of this pamphlet. There was some accusation at the time of meddling because it was said that Elizabeth had an influence on her husband, regarding his Italian and Hungarian subjects. Elizabeth was said to persuade her husband to give mercy with regard to political prisoners. And in 1857, Elizabeth actually visited Hungary for the first time with her husband and her two daughters. And it left sort of an impression on her that was really interesting. And she sort of felt this closeness towards Hungary. And it was a welcome respite for her away from the constraints of Austrian court life. And unlike her mother-in-law, who despised the Hungarians, Elizabeth actually felt an affinity towards them, and she started to learn the Hungarian language. 
In return, the country actually reciprocated this adoration. However, the same trip that Elizabeth gained this adoration from Hungary and from the people of Hungary, her two children became ill. Gisela recovered pretty quickly, but Sophie grew weaker and weaker before finally passing away in 1857. It is generally believed today that she died of typhus, and this drew Elizabeth into a really heavy period of depression that sort of lasted throughout the rest of her life. She then was said to have turned away from her other daughter and began neglecting her, although I don't see how this could be that possible since her mother-in-law was said to have been raising and taking control over these two little girls. But by December 1857, Elizabeth got pregnant again for the third time, and everyone was sort of hoping that this third pregnancy would help Elizabeth recover and gain back her normal spirit. Elizabeth was said to be about five feet eight inches tall, and this was kind of unusually tall for the time. She enjoyed fasting and exercise, gymnastics and riding, and was said to maintain her weight, which was supposedly about 110 pounds for most of her life. There were times during the morning for her daughter Sophie that Elizabeth refused to eat. She started avoiding dinner with her family and was said to eat very little and very quickly, and that whenever her weight threatened to exceed about 110 pounds, she had a fasting or a hunger cure, which would involve not eating for certain periods of time. She also was said to be disgusted by meat and either had the juice of raw beef steaks squeezed into thin soup or adhered to a diet of milk and eggs, which sounds gross, but Elizabeth was said to emphasize extreme slenderness through the practice of tight lacing, which they would wear these corsets, and there were strings in the back that would pull the corset very, very tightly to make it look as though the woman had a very, very slender waist. And then she was also said to have withdrawn from her husband, 1859 to 60. Despite Franz Joseph's political and military defeats in Italy, she completely withdrew from her husband sexually. And she said that it was because of the three pregnancies in rapid succession. She was said to have reduced her weight as well to about 16 inches in circumference despite the childbirth. But she had some very, very rigid corsets as well that helped her maintain that slender waist. And it was said that the strenuous lacing sometimes took over an hour to achieve. And she would often wear them for weeks. She was said to develop a horror of fat women during this time and transmitted this attitude to her youngest daughter, who was terrified when she first met Queen Victoria because Victoria was larger than this little girl was used to. Elizabeth also was known for following the fashions of the age and disliking expensive accoutrements or protocols that dictated constant changes of clothing. So she liked this sort of monochromatic writing-like attire. She never wore petticoats as was prescribed by the time period, and her very, very small waist became her trademark. She also liked extreme rigorous and disciplined exercise habits. I think I mentioned earlier that she liked riding and gymnastics, but every area that she lived in was equipped with a gymnasium. There were things like mats and balance beams in her bedchamber so she could practice each morning and mirrors so she could correct her movements and positions. She liked fencing as well. 
She wrote every day for hours, making her one of the world's best or best-known female equestrians at the time, although she developed sciatica at some point and was said to no longer be able to endure long hours in the saddle. She took up walking at that time, and this also subjecting her attendants to marching and hiking tours in all kinds of weather. During the last parts of her life, Elizabeth became more restless and obsessive. She sometimes weighed herself up to three times a day. She was said to regularly take steam baths to prevent weight gain. And by 1894, she was said to be very, very slender, reaching her lowest weight at about 95.7 pounds, which seems wild. She was also thought to have been binge eating during this time. On one occasion in 1878, she astonished her traveling companions when she unexpectedly visited this restaurant where she drank champagne, ate a boiled chicken, an Italian salad, and a large amount of cake. She is thought to have satisfied her urge to binge in secret on other occasions. By 1881, she purchased an English country house with a spiral staircase that was supposedly connected from the living room to the kitchen so she could reach it in private and have her little binges, quote-unquote. But she is thought to be one of the most beautiful women of 19th century Europe. She had this really, really rigorous exercise regimen, as I mentioned earlier, and she also had these really demanding beauty routines. She was said to have had this very, very long hair, which turned from dark blonde to chestnut brunette, and that the process for this took at least three hours. Her hair was so long and wavy that she often complained that the weight of the braids and pins that she had to wear to keep her hair up gave her headaches. Her hairdresser was responsible for all of her ornate hairstyles and accompanied her on all of her trips. This man was forbidden to wear rings and required to wear white gloves. After hours of dressing, braiding, and pinning up her hair, the hairs that fell out of her head after this had to be presented to her in a silver bowl for inspection. When her hair was washed, it was washed with a combination of eggs and cognac every two weeks, and all of her other activities for the day were canceled on those occasions. She was also said to have asked this man to tweeze away all gray hairs. And during these long hours of grooming, she was thought to have learned different languages. She spoke fluent English and French, and she learned modern Greek and Hungarian. She also used cosmetics and perfumes very infrequently and said she wished to showcase her natural beauty. She did like beauty products, and was said to have favored this cream de celeste, which was white wax, spermaceti, sweet almond oil, and rose water. She used this with a wide variety of facial tonics and water, and she had this really long and extensive nighttime routine. She slept without a pillow on a metal bedstead, which she believed was better for retaining and maintaining her upright posture. She had this mask which was a leather facial mask with either raw veal or crushed strawberries lining it. She also got massaged and often slept with cloth soaked in either violet or cider vinegar above her hips to keep her waist slim. And she had her neck wrapped with cloth soaked in washing water 
To preserve her skin tone, she took only cold showers every morning, which in later years were thought to aggravate her arthritis. And she had an olive oil bath at night. She was thought to have this aversion to being photographed, especially later in life, and was often seen with a fan or a sunshade to prevent her portrait being taken when she was out in public. Franz Joseph, her husband, was said to have been passionately in love with Elizabeth, but she didn't really reciprocate these feelings and felt increasingly stifled by court life and how rigid it was. Franz Joseph was said to be a stolid and sober man, very politically conservative, and was often guided by his mother. His mother was said to adhere very rigidly to the strict Spanish court ceremonial proceedings, and Elizabeth was thought to have inhabited a completely different world altogether. She was very restless to the point of hyperactivity. She was naturally introverted and emotionally distant from her husband. She fled him quite often, as well as her duties at court, avoiding both of them as much as she could, although he constantly and unsuccessfully tried to tempt her into a more domesticated life with him. She was said to have slept very little and spent long hours reading and writing in the evening. Sometimes she smoked as well, which was a very shocking habit for women at this time, especially women of royal stature. She loved history, philosophy, and literature, and developed sort of this reverence of German lyric poets. It was also said that she tried to make a name for herself by writing poetry. She often expressed her intimate thoughts and desires in writing these romantic poems, which kind of served as a sort of secret diary for her. She was said to be very emotionally complex and was also interested in the treatment of the mentally ill. And in 1871, when her husband asked her what she wanted as a gift, she told him she wanted a fully equipped lunatic asylum, which was very, very strange for the time. By August 21st, 1858, Elizabeth finally gave her husband the heir that he sought, and this was Rudolph. There was a 101-gun salute that announced the heir was finally here. And after this, Elizabeth developed an interest in politics. She was very liberal-minded and placed herself decisively on the Hungarian side of the increasing conflict between nationalities within the empire that her and her husband ruled. She was a personal advocate for a Hungarian count, Julia Andrasi, who was also rumored to be her lover. At this point, Elizabeth was still blocked from helping with her son's upbringing by her mother-in-law, but this time, when it happened with her latest child, she openly rebelled. However, by October 1860, she was reportedly suffering from anemia, but also from physical exhaustion. And there was a serious lung complaint as well that she was dealing with that was suspected possibly to be tuberculosis. And then there were malicious rumors going on as well that her husband, Franz Joseph, was having an affair with an actress. This did not take long for Elizabeth to seize on, and she left her husband and children and went to spend the winter by herself. Six months later, she finally returned to Vienna and again experienced coughing fits and fever. She ate very little and slept very badly, and there was a recurrence of her lung disease. Doctors prescribed rest, and she went to Corfu at this time, and her health improved almost immediately. 
leading people to believe that maybe her illnesses were psychosomatic because she wanted to be away from her husband and her duties at home. By 1862, she was getting treatment yet again and was showing signs of edema and her feet were sometimes so swollen she could walk very, very little and only with the support of others. She was given advice to go to a spa for a cure. And in August, 1862, after a two-year absence, she returned home only for her husband's birthday, but immediately started suffering from violent migraines and vomiting, which reaffirmed the complaints that her stress-related bouts were psychosomatic. Her son was four years old by this point, and Franz Joseph had hoped for another son to sort of safeguard the succession, but doctors said that the health of Elizabeth would not allow her to have another pregnancy, and she again fell into her old pattern of escaping boredom and dull court protocols through walking, writing, and using her health whenever she could to avoid official obligations and sexual intimacy. Preserving her youthful appearance was also really, really important to her, and another reason why she thought she needed to avoid pregnancy. She was said to have said, children are the curse of a woman, for when they come, they drive away beauty, which is the best gift of the gods, which is very interesting. But later in life, Elizabeth became more assertive, defying her husband and mother-in-law and openly opposing them on the subject of military education of her son, Rudolf. And it was said that Rudolf at the time was extremely sensitive and not suited for life at court. It was strange, though, because after basically using every excuse that she could at the time to avoid being pregnant again, Elizabeth decided that she wanted a fourth child. And she felt that by returning to her marriage, she ensured that Hungary, which she felt an intense emotional alliance to, would gain equal footing with Austria. And interestingly enough, she and Franz Joseph were officially crowned King and Queen of Hungary in June of 1867. And as a coronation gift, Hungary presented the royal couple with a country residence east of Budapest. In the following years, Elizabeth lived primarily in the area, leaving her neglected and resentful Austrian subjects to trade rumors that she was expecting a son that she would name Stephen after the patron saint and first king of Hungary. She instead gave birth to a daughter named Marie Valerie, who was dubbed the Hungarian child and was born 10 months after her parents' coronation. Elizabeth was determined this time, instead of letting her mother-in-law take this child away, she poured all of her repressed maternal feelings into her youngest daughter to the point of nearly smothering her. Her mother-in-law actually passed away in 1872. But even though she achieved her dreams in Hungary, Elizabeth did not stay to enjoy it, but instead embarked on a life of travel and ended up seeing very little of her children at that time. Newspapers published articles on her passion for writing, diet, and exercise regimens, and her fashion sense. She had become very popular by the fashion-crazed crowd as well, and newspapers started reporting a series of lovers that she was said to have taken, although there was no viable evidence of her having an affair. Despite her alleged affairs, Elizabeth sought to avoid all public attention in crowds of people. She mostly traveled incognito, using pseudonyms while she did so, and refusing to meet with any other European monarchs unless she felt like it. She did high-speed walking tours, which lasted several hours, and was usually accompanied by Greek-language tours or ladies-in-waiting. She was said to be reclusive and highly sensitive, a good listener, and a keen observer with great intellect. By 1889, Elizabeth's only son, Rudolf, was said to have passed away, 
He was found dead together with his young lover, Baroness Mary, that Sarah, which was suspected to be a murder-suicide. The scandal was known as the Mayerling Incident and happened in Rudolph's hunting lodge in Lower Austria, where they were found. It was said at the time that Elizabeth never really recovered from this tragedy, and she sunk further and further into depression. Within a few years, it was said that she lost her father, her only son, her sister Duchess Sophie in Bavaria, and Helen in 1890, as well as her mother in 1892. After her son's death, it was said that she dressed in only black for the rest of her life. The Mayerling scandal involving her son and this murder-suicide only increased public interest in her, and she continued to be an icon and a sensation in her own right wherever she went. She often wore long black dresses that could be buttoned at the bottom and carried a white parasol made of leather to hide her face from the curious onlookers. She spent very little time in Vienna with her husband despite his efforts to get her back there, and the correspondence between these two increased during their last years, but it appears that their relationship became more of a warm friendship rather than a marriage. On an imperial steamership, Empress Elizabeth traveled throughout the Mediterranean. She liked France and Italy and Greece. She went to Lake Geneva in Switzerland and to Austria and spent time in Kofu. It was obvious that these endless travels were a means of escape from her life and her misery. In 1898, there were warnings of a possible assassination attempt, but 60-year-old Elizabeth wanted to travel nonetheless, and she went incognito to Geneva, Switzerland. And despite her attempts to remain anonymous, someone from the Hotel Beau Rivage revealed that the Empress of Austria was staying there. At 1.35 p.m. on Saturday 10th, September 1898, Elizabeth and her lady-in-waiting left the hotel, which was located on the shore of Lake Geneva, went to catch the steamship Genevieve from Montreux. Since the Empress despised processions, she insisted that they walk without other members of their entourage. They were walking along this promenade when a 25-year-old Italian anarchist, Luigi Luceni, approached them. He was attempting to peer underneath the Empress's white parasol. When this happened, as the ship's bell announced their departure, this man seemed to stumble and he made a movement with his hand as if he was trying to maintain his balance. When he was doing this, though, he stabbed Elizabeth with a sharpened needle file that was about four inches long that he had inserted into a wooden handle. He had originally planned to kill the Duke of Orleans, but failing to find this man, he selected Elizabeth when a newspaper revealed that the elegant woman was traveling under a pseudonym, but was actually the Empress Elizabeth of Austria. He said, I am an anarchist by conviction. I came here to kill a sovereign with object of giving an example to those who suffer and those who do nothing to improve their social position. It did not matter to me who the sovereign was whom I should kill. It was not a woman I struck. It was a crown that I had in view. After this man struck the empress, she collapsed. A coach driver helped her to her feet. The two women then walked roughly 100 yards to the gangway and boarded the ship. Her companion, in the meantime, relaxed her hold on Elizabeth's arm, at which point the empress lost consciousness and collapsed next to her. A doctor was called and a nurse, and the captain at this time, ignorant of Elizabeth's true identity, noticed that it was really hot on deck and advised the countess to disembark and take her companion back to the hotel. 
In the meantime, though, the boat was already sailing out of the harbor. The three men who helped carry Elizabeth to the top of the deck laid her on a bench. They were able to open her dress and cut back her corset so she could breathe. And then she lost consciousness again. It was at that point that her companion noticed a small brown stain above the left breast of the empress. Alarmed that her companion had not recovered consciousness, this woman informed the captain of her true identity and the boat turned back to the port where Elizabeth was carried back to the hospital. She was unfortunately dead by that point. She was officially pronounced dead at 2.10 p.m. She had been the Empress of Austria for 45 years. When her husband, Franz Joseph, received the notice of her death, he initially feared that it was caused by suicide. But when the assassination was later detailed, an autopsy was called for, and they discovered that the wound had penetrated by about 3.33 inches into Elizabeth's thorax. Her ribs were fractured, and her lung had been pierced, and her heart had also been penetrated from the top out the base of the left ventricle. The wound was very narrow, and due to pressure from Elizabeth's extremely tight corseting, the hemorrhage of blood into the sac around the heart had slowed to mere drops. And it was said that had the weapon not been removed from her, she would have lived a while longer as it would have acted like a plug to stop the bleeding. Eventually, the wound was photographed on orders of Franz Joseph. The photographs of the wound, along with the autopsy instruments, were all destroyed and the country shuddered itself in mourning. Elizabeth's body was placed in a coffin, two inner ones of lead and a third exterior coffin of bronze with a lion on claws. The coffins were then sealed and fitted with two glass panels covered with doors which could be slid back to allow her face to be seen. Her body was then carried back to Vienna aboard a funeral train. The inscription on her coffin read, Elizabeth, Empress of Austria, in the meantime, though, Hungarians were outraged. Thousands and thousands of people were in deep mourning. 82 sovereigns and high-ranking nobles followed her funeral cortege on the morning of 17th of September to the tomb of Capuchin Church. After this attack, the man that killed Elizabeth fled, but was eventually caught by two cab drivers and a sailor. The weapon was found the next day by the concierge during his morning cleaning. It was initially thought that it belonged to a laborer who had moved the day before, and so the police weren't notified until the following day. There was no blood on the file, and the tip was broken off. Evidently had occurred when Luceni threw it away. And although this man boasted that he acted alone, they eventually suspected that there was a plot on the life of the emperor. Once it was discovered that an Italian was responsible for Elizabeth's murder, Unrest swept through Vienna and reprisals were threatened against the Italians. The man who killed Elizabeth was eventually brought before the court in October and was sentenced to death. Initially, this man's sanity was questioned, but he was eventually declared sane and was tried as a common murderer, not as a political criminal. He was incarcerated for life and denied the opportunity to make a political statement by his action. He then attempted to kill himself with a sharpened key from a tin of sardines on February 20th, 1900. And 10 years later, he ended up hanging himself with his belt in his cell, October 16th, 1910. Upon her death, her husband, Franz Joseph, founded the Order of Elizabeth in memory of her. In Vienna, there's an elaborate memorial monument featuring a sealed statue of the Empress, dedicated June 4th, 1907. There are various other memorials to Elizabeth throughout the country, and the residents that she frequented are preserved and open to the public now, including the Imperial Hofburg apartment 
and various palaces that she resided in. There are cities in Hungary that are named after her. Two of Budapest's districts are named after her. And there's a fountain named after her on the Greek island of Corfu. There was also a railway named after her. There have been various books, musicals, operas, and all sorts of other things that have been dedicated to Elizabeth over the years. This definitely seems like a woman who was challenged by depression. And I could kind of see some comparisons to this modern day in the English royal family. So it was a really interesting story and a really sad ending to this woman's life. But if you want to know a little bit more about her life and sort of the loose portrayal of her, go check out that Empress series on Netflix. We're going to go ahead and wrap the episode up for the day. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. We also post pictures on Instagram. We're at the BFD podcast. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stories. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe. Keep it real and always live your very best life. Bye.